any given week, some of the very holiest moments in our church occur on Sunday afternoons. You go all the way down the hall, take a left and a right and a left. You go down to where variously sized chairs semicircle around old upright pianos, and you find there the place where our children learn to sing. Now we all know the blessing anytime our children's choirs lead us in worship, but most of us don't know that much of the blessing of the immense rehearsal and intense effort that lead up to such Sunday morning joy. Well, I saw it up close a few weeks back. I had the task of accompanying a reluctant child on their way down the hallway to choir, and then staying in the room for just a few minutes. And it was enough to give me a glimpse of the tremendous expertise, the patience, the enthusiasm, and the love of all of those who lead our children in music. One of those joys was to see that one of the volunteers was my own mother, who was there. And as I watched her there, standing behind her now grandchildren, it took me back to Seminole First Baptist Church, or Lakeside Baptist Church, sitting in those similar wooden chairs in Mrs. Shirouse's choir, and remembering her eyes, her posture, her lifted chin, how she would mouth the words right along with us, and seeing how she was doing the same thing now with my daughter. Well, the experts say that parents should do this. Parents should sing with their children. Now, I know some of you might consider yourselves tone deaf, but even you should know that there is no sound more powerful to a child than their parents' voice. Some studies suggest that babies actually prefer songs sung by their parents, whatever the skill level, rather than perfectly produced songs that might come on the radio or the TV or the smart speaker. At just a day old, babies are able to discriminate rhythmic patterns as though it's something that is innate in them. And so music plays an important role in early childhood development. It's the first language lesson, helps with vocabulary, communication. It encourages literacy as they begin to read music. Social and emotional formation are nurtured through music. Music sparks movement and exercise among children as they begin to move their bodies in rhythm with the song. Singing can aid children in moments of transition, like when waking up or going to sleep or walking into school. It gives opportunities for bonding among adults and, ch and children. Music can also, we know, teach values, pass on beloved traditions, and nurture faith. That's part of why what we say as a congregation during baby dedications is that we are committed to tell a child the stories of Jesus and to sing for them the songs of faith until they know those songs deep down in their bones. That's part of why we offer choral singing at every stage of development in this church because you can watch a teenager on a baccalaureate Sunday as they move or mouth the words to something they have sung and you realize that they go from here as we all do toward all that God is calling us to be not only with what has been taught and encouraged through word or action, but also with what resides in us through music. And with all of the people who have helped to lift the chin, to take a breath, to mouth the words, to sing out 
the songs of faith. And I can't help but think that Jesus grew up singing. After all, the New Testament scholar Dr. Beverly Gaventa reminds us that Jesus had a mother who, quote, nurtured, nursed, taught him, played with him, told him stories that may have later become parables and sang to him throughout his days. And she started this right away, even before he was born, when he was just growing and stretching in her womb. It was to the tones and the sounds of this song, the Magnificat. This was no lullaby, of course. There's not much about Mary that is as gentle, meek, and mild as we often make her out to be. Mary had the most powerful occupation in the world. She was a mother. She was releasing love into a dangerous and hostile world that she was unable to control. And this was not a job she was expecting. Certainly not yet. Certainly not like this. Saying yes to God's call, in fact, put her at great risk. She's vulnerable in at least three ways. She's young, she is a woman in a patriarchal world, and she's unexpectedly and inexplicably pregnant. But Mary is also resolved. And she says earlier in Luke those words that are perhaps as clear a statement of faith as any we hear in Scripture, here I am. Let it be with me, as you have said. Kathleen Norris has written that in that pivotal moment, quote, Mary doesn't lose her voice amidst the fear. That's when she finds it. And she must reach back somewhere to something she had heard before. Back to all of those standing behind her, to the prophets, to the hopes of her people, back to something taught to her and formed in her. She begins to imagine what it would mean if all the angel said is true, and so she stands straight, she lifts up her head, she takes a deep breath, she begins to sing out into the Judean night. She feels the child within her move, and it's as though she can feel the earth moving with him. She swells with the signs of new life, and it's as though she can imagine a kingdom that is being born that will stand in contrast to the kingdoms of this world. God has shown strength and scattered the proud, she sings. God has brought down the powerful from their thrones. God has lifted up the lowly. God has filled the hungry with good things. God has sent the rich away empty. God will keep the promises that God has made. Promises that Mary understands better than most people. And so she sings of a God who cares deeply and passionately about people, about the conditions of their lives in the world. A God who cares a lot about people who, in a plentiful world, are yet hungry. A God who cares a lot about people who in an active and bustling world are yet forgotten. A God who cares a lot about people who in a loud world of great bravado are yet silenced. A God who cares about injustice and suffering and inequality of any kind. And with every word Mary sings out, this vision is embodied in her, poor and young and vulnerable and at risk, the kind of woman who would birth the son and have no place else to place him but into a manger, nothing else in which to wrap him but the rags that she could find within reach. If God is going to choose someone to birth God's son, a Lord, a Messiah, one mighty to save, well then most of us would expect somebody who is powerful, somebody who is lofty by the standards of the world. Unless, of course, this choice of Mary 
represents something important about God. Unless, of course, who Mary is, as poor, vulnerable, hopeful for another way, tells us something about who Jesus is. Don't forget, Jesus' birth, it was so particular, it was so specific. The power of Advent is not really how large and sweeping it is, but how small, how intimate. Jesus was not born in every place. He was born in a certain place. He was not born for all time, but in a particular time. And he was not born to all people, but to one person. God chose Mary. God wanted the son to be born to this woman so that he could see the world as she sees it. God wanted the son to know the things that she knows. And from those earliest moments, stretching into this world in her womb, God wanted the son to hear the song that she sings. A song that imagines a new world, a new way, refuses to accept things as they are. And so Jesus arrives on the scene to great singing, all of the perfection and splendor and volume of an angel choir. But I think that he always preferred the sound of his mother's voice. For Jesus, this song of Mary, it was the good news of great joy. And yet for this world, for its powers, it has often been threatening news of great agitation. It's the kind of news that sent Herod into a murderous frenzy, searching for this one who was going to be born. It's the kind of news that frustrated authorities throughout the course of Jesus' life. And yet it's the kind of news that some people can read and hear and believe that the promises of God are actually for them. That God does not want them to suffer with hunger or disease, that God doesn't want their lives to waste away, that God doesn't want them to be lost in poverty, living amidst vulnerability and risk. My friend, Reverend Heidi Newmark, is a Lutheran pastor who once was pastor of a tiny church in New York City in the poorest section of the Bronx neighborhood. And she wrote a wonderful memoir of her time there called Breathing Space. She tells of this congregation composed of all kinds of people, undocumented workers, And people in recovery, women who had shaken loose from prostitution, and Heidi says those were just the church officers. Well, she shared recently about how once amidst Advent worship, a woman in this congregation read the Magnificat aloud in this sanctuary filled with people who were living in poverty. And at the end, the woman looked up and she added, thank God. What about us? What do we say? Can we sing this song? Can we form these words? Can we commit it down in our bones and let it shape us? Can we teach it to those around us? Can we sing it along with our children? Yes, if we're honest, we might prefer the more symbolic, spiritual aspects of Christ's coming to All of this talk of the mighty being pulled down from their thrones, the lowly lifted up, well, that can start to sound like economics or politics or things that many of us would rather not talk about in church. Well, I have a preacher friend who, when he comes across a topic like that, is known for, not infrequently, when it's something controversial, 
to put it in his grandmother's, grandmother's words. And so he'll use the phrase, well, it's like my grandma used to say. And it makes me wonder if Jesus might have said a time or two, well, it's like my mother used to say. Or rather, my mother used to sing it this way. From the time she wrapped the child in the cloths within reach and comforted him with a song against the Bethlehem night. And so I wonder if he would hold those words and invoke them as he came to understand who he was. I can imagine him echoing her throughout all the days of his life until eventually he doesn't need to because these words become his own. From the time he first moved to it in her womb, heard it sung over him as a boy, grew into the space that it imagined and created for him, becoming his commission and call eventually this song of hers. It became his song. And so the theme that rang out in the music that broke the silence of the night outside Bethlehem with a multitude of heavenly hosts appearing to the shepherds, it was that song, peace and goodwill for all the people. And then as a child, he's still 12 in the Gospel of Luke, he's already setting his life to being about this song. I must be about my father's business, he tells Mary and Joseph. And then notes of the song are heard as his ministry begins. He's at the Jordan River. He's appearing on the scene as an adult. He's connecting his life to the prophet John, starting not at the centers of power or the elevated lofty places of prestige, but going to hidden places. Places like out to the wilderness where people are trying to catch a new dream for this world. And he wades into the water and he rises up from his baptism and traces of this song can be heard parting the sky, reminding him who he is and the power that rests on him as the beloved son of God. And so that melody just keeps echoing. It continues with him. It must have strengthened him through his moments of doubt when he was in that desert of temptation with all of the alluring options set before him. He needed to remember who he was there. And so that song is still ringing in his ears as he leaves the desert, returns home to Nazareth, and he shares his very first public words in the Gospel of Luke, his voice strong as he declares what must have made his mother proud, good news to the poor and the oppressed going free. It became for Jesus the theme that followed him through the rest of his life. You can hear its echo as he proclaimed release for all of those captive to various forms of demonic, economic, social, political bondage, or as he restores sight to the blind, as he revives the prophetic vision of a year of jubilee, or as he proclaims of those who open tables to invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, or even as he's asked, are you the one? Or should we wait for another? And then even when he wonders this himself, am I the one? Is this my purpose when he's off by himself in the garden? I imagine that somehow the music echoed for him then, not my will but yours be done, he said. Which sounds an awful lot like something you might hear from someone who once heard their mother say, let it be with me, as you have said. And so she is there. If not physically with him, she is there every day of his life. 
She nursed and nurtured and taught him. She played with him. She told him stories that may later have become parables. She taught and loved him in childhood. She mothered him daily in adolescence. She talked with him through young adulthood, and he was, in all probability, the source of her income through his carpentry trade in Nazareth. And she followed him from Nazareth in all that was ahead, including all the way to Jerusalem, where she watched as the terrible, holy events of that last week came to pass. She was there in the crowd when he was led to his trial. And she was among the masses the next morning when the world that he called to renewal and the world that he sought to turn upside down finally with all of its inertia towards the status quo, the way things are, turned back to the only order it knew and it crushed him as it did. But still she was there. She refused to leave him. Even when all the others, Peter, John, James, all of them, they had fled off, hiding behind rocks somewhere. But his mother stood by. And the Bible doesn't tell us if she said anything at all in that tragic moment. But can't you imagine her chin lifting, her lips mouthing, the words, her breath catching as she sought to project it out, her voice finding the melody again of a song about a God who, even in death, raises up the lowly. The theologian J. Philip Newell has said that music is a metaphor for all creation and God's created intent for this world. All that we know, he says, began with a sound a note, a song from God. And it's a song of which life can quickly rob us. But Jesus, Newell says, Jesus came to sing this song among us and to help us learn it ourselves. Well, if Jesus came to sing a song, don't forget where he learned it. He learned it from his mother, and so may we do the same this Advent. Amen.